Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. Good. 23 days to Christmas, right? My gosh, my kids reminded me of that like three weeks ago. It's Christmas time already. Crazy. Crazy. Came fast this year, right? Christmas? Man. Seems like we just had Thanksgiving like a week ago. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, obviously, James isn't here today, so he asked me to, to, uh, to step in for him. Um, one of his sons has, a, I think it's a chess tournament or something. I don't know. It's a game I don't understand. So <laughs> anyway, uh, he's, he's going to be gone today, obviously. So um, let's go ahead and get started and um, get going here. God, we just thank you so much, God, for this time. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. Father, we just thank you that we don't have to plead and beg. Uh, for your Holy Spirit to come, that He's here, that your Word said He abides with us forever and will never leave us, never forsake us, God. And we thank you that we can just relax and just enjoy your presence today, God. And we just echo the same prayer that Paul prayed. It said um, that we ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, God, that you may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. God, give us revelation of you today. God, not, not a revelation of religion, a, a, a revelation of anything else, God, but a revelation, Father, of you. God, may our eyes and our hearts be enlightened today, God, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of his Father. God, we just thank you. God, that we'll be taught by your Holy Spirit today, God, that we will uh, come out of here, God, having a greater revelation of the finished work of Jesus, that it is truly complete in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so a few of you in here are older than me, have more miles than me, I guess we could say it that way. Um, but how many of you were raised, um, and it seemed like a couple times a year, maybe once a year, there was a revival in your church? Right? A revivalist is coming. Get ready. You know, let's fast. Let's pray. We're going to have a revival coming. Anybody ever go through the old school revivals? You know, I went through a few of them, but not as many as maybe my wife has um, and probably some of you. And, and you guys can, I'm sure, are already thinking what those revivals were like and, um, you know, just everything that went along with that revival. So I'm just going to be sharing a couple of things today. Um, about revival, and um, unfortunately, the word revival is not even in the New Testament, much less in the Bible. Um, so I'm going to be talking about a couple things that are just actually they're religious cliches, but they're not scriptural. So we're going to take a look at the difference between a revival and really what God has called us to is not a revival, but a revelation. We don't need another revival. We don't need another prayer meeting. We don't need any of those things that, you know, have been going around since you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and all the way up to where we're now. Now, am I against praying? Of course not. Uh, I absolutely believe in that. But what I don't believe in is a lot of what's taught in the church as far as what revival is, what that looks like. So we're just going to be taking a look at a couple of things and, and um, you know, kind of killing a couple sacred cows, if that's okay with you guys. Um, have a little barbecue this morning. Is that all right? <laughs> all right. Okay. 
All right. God never puts revival on the sale table. It'll cost you everything. I'm afraid many of our ministers are not aware of the personal price. The price that has to be paid in prayer prior to revival. And then the discipline that has to be exercised during and after revival. We preach a strong holiness message for people to get the sin out of their lives. When they get the sin out, revival is right at their heels. If a holiness message was being preached all over the country, then we would also see revival break out. This present generation is waiting for somebody to stand up and say, you can't live like that anymore. When we preach that way, teenagers come by the hundreds run into the altar. All right, that's not my words. Okay, I don't believe any of that. But if you look up revival in a lot of the messages, a lot of the articles, a lot of the teachings that are out there, that's exactly what you'll find. It's exactly what you'll find. Especially the last one says, if a holiness message was being preached all over the country, then we would also see revival break out, right? That's usually what you'll hear. We need to get your life right. You need to get the sin out of your life. You need to stop sinning. You need to start doing all of these things. Then once we stop doing those things, then God will maybe, maybe release what he's been holding back, apparently, right? Because that's, that's really what the mentality is. And I love this part. When we preach that way, teenagers come by the hundreds running to the altar. Really? Anybody ever seen that? I mean, in most revivals that you go to, do you see a lot of teenagers running to the altar when sin is lifted up, when there's a holiness message? Basically, it's um, stop sinning, do better next time. That's exactly what most revivals talk about. So, okay, when you think of revival, this is, this is what I think about. This is how my mind works. You can write this down if you want to. Revival equals an outside-in focus, right? Revival is an outside-in focus. It's a behavior focus. It's a behavior modification. Do better next time, and then God will be pleased with you if you perform up to the standards. That's basically what is taught out there. Do better next time. Praying for revival is absolutely not biblical. That might mess with your minds, but it's not biblical. Okay, Praying for revival is not biblical, and I'm going to prove that. Um, Or anywhere in the New Testament. There's nowhere that we as believers are commanded to cry out to God, to beg for God to come, more of His Holy Spirit. God, we need more of your power. How many realize that in Ephesians it talks about we've been given everything, right? To live a life of godliness. Everything, right? Paul wasn't, you know, trying to hide something from us or anything. Everything... When we were born again, when we were saved, when we received Christ, everything was given to us. So why are we crying out for more of what we already have? It's insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, expecting different results. That's the definition of insanity. The word revival is not even found in the New Testament, all right? Now, revive is, okay, and, and, and kind of variations of that, which I'm going to talk about here. When someone says, God, have mercy on our city, state, our nation, then that person is basically trying to convince God to change his mind about Hebrews 8.12. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 8. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 is where we'll start today. (coughs) Hebrews 8.12. Everybody there? Maybe? Almost? Okay. 
Hebrews 8, verse 12, which says, so again, just setting this up, and I'm sure you guys have heard these prayers. I've prayed them hundreds of times, uh, and I'm sure you guys have as well. Basically, you know, God have mercy on our city. God have mercy on our state, our nation. We need more prayer. God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our unholiness, right? It's crying out to God for stuff that he's already done. Look what this says. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful and gracious toward their sins, and I will remember their deeds of, of unrighteousness. What? No more. no more. Right? That would convey the idea that the sacrifice of Christ was just a down payment. Right? And now we are required to make payments. Right? That's basically what that prayer is, is saying. As if God is holding back his grace as if God is holding back his mercy. When you, and I used to pray this all the time. God, release this, release this, release the anointing, release whatever. Okay, what that basically is saying, now that I'm on this side of, of having a revelation of the finished work, what's that basically? If you're asking God to release something, that means he's holding it back, right? And God doesn't hold back anything from us, right? Absolutely nothing, all right? And one of the things that you'll hear, probably one of the prominent things that you'll hear, especially when you see um, disasters, when you see earthquakes, when you see tornadoes, when you see hurricanes. I mean, we just had Hurricane Sandy, what, a couple, like a month ago, right? Whenever that was, two months ago. I don't know about you, but I saw some of the things, you know, on Facebook, online, on TV. This is God judging the world. This is God judging New York. This is God judging the Northeast. Anybody else see that? This is God judging, right? And all the other things that that comes along with that. But God's not judging the world. He's already done that, right? He will no more judge the world. He even promised that he would never flood the earth again, right? He will never, ever judge the world. So I don't know how people come up with that, that God is judging the world. Um, Let's look at a scripture. This is a a sacred cow that that I want to behead this morning. Um, John chapter 12. We'll start at verse 28. John chapter 12, starting at verse 28. John 12, 28. I'll start at verse 27. Okay, everybody there? Okay. This is when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, all right? This is right before um, the Feast of the Passover and and, uh, the Last Supper and all of that. But I'm going to start at verse 27 and read on here. It says, Now my soul has become troubled, this is Jesus speaking, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Verse 31, look at this. What's the first word there in that verse? Okay. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, I want to explain something to you. Um, if you, if you look at that verse, uh, verse 32, <clears throat> it says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Is that what your Bible says? So, now, if you're reading the King James Version, anybody have the King James Version in here? One? Okay. 
Is that word, um, is the word men in italicized? Yes, right? Okay. The reason that the word men is italicized is because it was not in the original Greek. The King James translator added the word men in there to try to prove a point to help us understand what that verse was trying to say. Okay? Now, one of the most important things when you're reading scripture is context, right? I'm a big, big believer in context. I don't like just pulling scriptures out of context and just cherry picking and this is what that means, but... Context, very, very important. If you don't really understand the context, then you're just, it's almost like you're jumping into a conversation. Anybody ever jumped into a conversation with somebody talking and they say something weird like, what? Like, I just walked into a really weird conversation here. That's exactly what's going on in this verse, okay? Look at the context here. Jesus is talking in verse 31. What's he talking about in verse 31? He's talking about judgment, right? So let's read this verse as it should be read in the original Greek, okay? In the original, verse 32 says, And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all, not all men, will draw all judgment to myself. That's what Jesus is saying. The context that what Jesus is talking about is judgment. And another thing that people say, so that just really debunks a lot of the stuff that's out there. I'll draw all men to myself. That's not true. I used to believe, oh, let's just pray. If we just, if we just lift Jesus up, if we just worship him in service, we lift him up in, in church, all these kind of things. No. What he's talking about, if I'm lifted up, where? On the cross, right? I will draw all judgment to myself. Context, he's talking about judgment. He's not talking about if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about if I be lifted up, I'll draw all judgment. Yes. Yep. Yes. A lot of them will say everyone. Some will say all peoples. Some will say all, there's all different types of things. But in the Greek, if you go back, and especially the King James, anytime you see an italicized word, that means it was added by the translators. It does not mean it was in the original translation. So what he's trying to say or what he's saying, Jesus is saying, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all judgment to me, meaning that God will no longer judge the earth. Right? That clears a lot of stuff up there, especially that, that verse, which I used to, you know, I used to believe that. If we just lift Jesus up, then... Everybody will be saved. Everybody will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We hope that happens, but it's not true. It's just not true. So that's what that scripture means. All judgment will be placed on him. Okay? Is there a version of the Bible that uses the term judgment? The judgment is not, not judgment. It doesn't say judgment. If you read the scripture in verse 30, what was it, 31? Basically, if you go back and read the Greek, which I did, the Greek... It says this, it says, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw, it basically says, will draw to myself. That's what it means in the original Greek. But you have to look at context and Jesus, a verse before says, now is the judgment of this world. So he's saying, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all judgment unto me. Okay. It takes it. it, It's amazing what happens when you actually read the Bible in context, (laughs) at least for me anyway. All right. Now. The reason that God never commanded us to, um, to pray for revival is because we are revival. Okay? Why would God ask you to pray for something that you already are? If you are a believer, you are revival. Okay? You don't have to pray and, God, pray. We need revival. We need, 
more of your presence. We need all these types of things when God is saying, I've already given it to you. Go out and be revival, right? Change the world, change the world. Okay, revival comes from the word revive. It means to restore to consciousness or life. To restore from a depressed, inactive, or unused state or to bring back. Now, this is how the church has defined revival. When most Christians think about revival, they usually associate revival meetings when a revivalist or evangelist holds meetings to stir up, basically do better next time. Anybody ever heard of Charles Finney? Yes. Okay. If you pull up the word revival, he's probably number one through 100, right? I mean, he is a what most churches call the original, the revivalist, or whatever you want to call it. But his theology on revival is actually pretty off, okay, it, it, in light of the finished work of Christ. This is a quote from Charles Finney. It says, A revival always includes a conviction of sin on the part of the church. Backslidden professors cannot wake up and, be, and begin right away in the service of God without deep searchings of heart. The foundations of sin need to be broken up. In a true revival, Christians are always brought under such convictions. They see their sins in such a light they often, uh, that often they find it impossible to maintain a hope of their acceptance with God. They find it impossible? Really? Okay. It does not always go to that extent, but there are always, in a genuine revival, deep convictions of sin and often cases of abandoning all hope. Backslidden Christians will be brought to repentance. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. I quoted that right there. I quoted that I don't know how many times in my life. A, A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Anybody ever heard that before? Okay. Just as in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of heart, a getting down into the dust before God, with deep humility and forsaking of sin. A revival breaks the power of the world and of sin over Christians. Think about that statement. A revival, not the cross, not the blood, breaks the power of the world and of sin over Christians. Where's Jesus in that, right? Where's the cross? Where's... Where is everything that, that we know to be true, the finished work of Jesus? Where is, where is Jesus in that? This is another quote from it. Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. Charles Finney. Okay, let's look at another scripture, uh, another sacred cow. This is probably the number one scripture that people use when talking about revival um, intercession, all these different types of things. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Let's take a look at it. Go ahead and turn to there. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Everybody there? <clears throat> Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. Okay. This is probably the scripture that, again, you'll hear most people pray in revival meetings, prayer meetings, you know, different types of, um, you know, meetings or whatever the case may be. Let's look at verse 14. It says, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their land. All right? 
Anybody else prayed that other than me? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, right? Okay. Now, some in verse 14, the way I'm used to it is, if my people, right? That's how most translate, a lot of translations, if my people. Okay, now, one of my favorite subjects in school was definitely not math. Um, I'll say that. But probably one of my favorite subjects was English. Okay? All right, so I'm going to go back to basic English. Um, so we're going to have a little reading, writing, arithmetic here, but just on the English side here. Okay, starting with verse 14, those of you that has if or whatever, is that first word if, is it capitalized or is it lowercase? Okay. So, if it's lowercase, then let's go back to remedial English here. If it's lowercase, that means it's a continuation of a previous sentence. It's a continuation of a previous verse, right? It's not the beginning of a verse, even though it is verse 14, yes. But if it was the beginning of a sentence, that word would be capitalized, right? Okay, so let's jump up, let's go ahead one verse, and let's look at verse 13. How many people have actually read verse 13? A few, right? Because we always jump to 14, right? Um, There is a verse 13, right? All right, there is a verse 13. Let's look at verse, I'm going to start with verse 12, okay? It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send people, um, or if I send, excuse me, pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and hear their land. Okay. This is how I understand this is what makes sense to me. What most people use that verse as is a formula for revival. Okay? It's not a formula for revival. It's actually a formula for agriculture. It's an agricultural verse. That's the context of that verse, what God is talking about. If I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, if there's no rain, are crops going to grow? Right? Okay. Uh, Or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. What God is saying, if you do all these things, then I'm going to help your land to grow. It's talking about agriculture. What most people think that verse is talking about is heal the land of sin. Heal the land of unholiness, of unrighteousness, all these different types of things. So one, again, it goes back to context. When you are reading a verse, make sure that you read the verse before and the verse after, or a couple verse after, whatever the, the, the context is there, okay? So does that help with that verse? All right, it's not talking about if my people are called by my name, humble themselves. Let's look at it for a second. In light of, let's put lenses on of the finished work of Christ, okay? Everybody got their glasses on um, invisibly here. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, which we are, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Okay, under the new covenant, do we have to ask for forgiveness in order to be forgiven? No. Under the old covenant, right? Yes. Okay, when they went to, uh, went to the temple, they sacrificed the, the bulls, the goats, all these different types of things. The only way that they were forgiven, and really was one time a year, right, on the Day of Atonement. That's absolutely true in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, that cannot be true. The other thing that we have to take away from this is who the, uh, who the writer is writing to. Is it writing to Gentiles? No. No. It's writing to Israelites, 
right? It's in the Old Covenant, all right? Keep reading. And my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Okay, he's already forgiven our sins. Jesus is no longer forgiving sins. Do you realize that? Everybody on the face of the earth is forgiven, believer and unbeliever. They're forgiven. Not everybody is saved. Not everybody has received Christ. Okay, everybody is forgiven. All right. Because if you want to take a look at that reconciliation, forgiveness, God doesn't need our permission to forgive us. Right? Now, forgiveness is a, if you look at it, a game, whatever you want. Forgiveness, it's a one-player game. God. Reconciliation, that's a two-player game. Right? So if you look at marriage, all right, that's the easiest way for me to understand that. When I... When I started dating my wife, when we started going out and became really good friends, ultimately, I asked her to marry me, right? Anybody in here that's married, husbands, you know what I'm talking about. As much as I wanted to marry her, or if you want to look at it this way, be reconciled, right? As much as I wanted to be reconciled to her, she had the choice to be reconciled to me, right? To say, yes, I will marry you. That's what reconciliation is, okay? Um, Does God want everybody to be saved? Absolutely. Yes. No doubt about that. But we have a choice. We have a choice. All right? And what relationship would you want somebody, let's look at it like this, what relationship um, if you want to take a look at, at, um, you know, at Jesus and reconciliation. Anybody ever seen those old pictures? I don't know. I did. I grew up in a Methodist church. But anybody ever seen those pictures where Jesus is outside knocking on the door, right? He's dressed in like this long robe and he looks pretty freaky. Like he looks scary, right? He did to me anyway. I'll never forget that picture. But anyway, um, can the door be opened from the outside? Jesus is outside knocking. Is he going to barge in and bust down the door? No. The only way that door can be opened is for somebody on the inside to open it, right? Which is salvation. Okay, Jesus is never going to force himself on people that's not love. That's actually called rape. Right? Jesus, God is a God of love. He's never going to do that. Okay, I know I got off on a sidetrack there, but it it makes my point there. Okay, listen to what A.W. Tozer said about revival. I love this. Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we've been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words to get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Okay? Now, obedience, we all know what that means. It's not, you know, a, a demand or it's not anything of that. When we understand the finished work of Christ, everything that we do is a natural flow. It's just something we're going to do naturally. It just happens. It's not the way we used to understand obedience. Like you have to do these things, and if you better, if you don't do these things, and God's going to get you, and He's going to send lightning bolts on top of you, and you know your kids are going to get sick, your kids are going to go in the hospital, and you're going to lose your house, right? That's the way that a lot of people understand obedience. Okay, but one scripture I'll point out. You don't have to turn to it, but Exodus fourteen, ten through sixteen. <clears throat> it's Moses here. Exodus fourteen. If you want to turn to it, you can. Exodus fourteen. I'm going to read it really quick, just for time's sake. But it just goes to the point about, about doing what God has called us to do rather than just praying about it all the time. And again, I, I'm not against praying, so don't listen to what I'm not saying. 
Exodus 14, uh, 10 through 16. I'm just going to read it, again, just for time's sake. This is right after, um, right after uh, Israel um, left Egypt. They're going to the Promised Land right before they hit the Red Sea. This is the scene that we're at. <clears throat> I'll start at verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? I'm going to skip down to verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, uh, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Look at verse 16. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea, and I will divide it. Does it say that? So what is, God is not asking Moses to do something. God is asking Moses to believe something. Right? So that goes to the point about, about um, obeying, right? When God tells us to do something, it's not a demand or a command necessarily. It's something that we believe, and out of the belief comes the action. Right. So even in the old covenant, God wanted Moses to realize, look, look what you have in your hand just to believe. And Moses put it in it and, you know, the whole the Red Sea and all that divided. All right. So <clears throat> it's about believing something. I thought this is really good, too. The renewal of a great awakening that is being touted by many, which demands a high level of morality in order to be blessed or increased consecration in order to have a, a move of God, whatever that is is not only not the answer, but it's actually the very opposite of what the church needs. I've heard it said that great revival will only come to America when the church of Jesus Christ wakes up from its slumber, begins to pray and repent. Anybody ever heard that before? This kind of doctrine ignores the cross of Christ, effectively declaring that man's actions and not the finished work of Jesus determines how God deals with us. That's that's Pastor Paul White. Um, If you guys want somebody to listen to that, I mean, really teaches the finished work of Christ. It's, his name is Paul White, not Paula White. His name is Paul White. Uh, he's out of Missouri. Um, really, really good. He's got a really good book out there called From Revelation to Transformation. Awesome. Really, really good. Okay, another thing that you'll hear people say is, is this. If you ask the average believer, what is it that stops revival? What would the answer be? Sin. Right out of the get-go. Sin, right? Absolutely, it's sin. Okay. All right. Rick, if you want to come up here for a second. I know your name's Rick, right? Okay, because I think he came up last time. Rick and I are having a conversation. We're sitting at Starbucks, right, having coffee. All right? And Rick says that exact... We're having a conversation. I said, Rick, what is it that stops revival? Sin. Sin. Absolutely, sin. Okay. This is a conversation you can have with somebody that's very, very simple to prove them. It's not to tear them down or to argue with them or debate, because I'm not into that. All right, I, I don't like debating. But it's a simple way that you can just kind of share the truth with them. So you say sin stops revival, right? Okay. Let me ask you, Rick, are you born again and has God transformed your life from the way it used to be? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Second question. In the eyes of God, is there any sin that's greater than another? No. Okay. All right. 
most people, they're going to answer those. Right. First question, yes, absolutely. God's transformed my life from the inside out. No, there's not a greater sin in God's eyes. Now, in man's eyes, there is. Right. In God's eyes, sin is sin. doesn't matter if you're speeding 70 miles an hour in a 60-mile-an-hour zone or it's gluttony. Whatever. They're, in God's eyes, they're the same. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Romans 5.20. All right? You can say Romans 5.20. Check it out. Where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. Okay? So, you can say this. So, you're saying all the sin that was in your life didn't stop God from coming in and cleaning you up from the inside out. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. They'll usually say, and they'll usually say yes. So, that means what you're saying is that sin cannot stop the power of God. Exactly. So, thank you. That's an easy conversation you can have with people to prove that them if sin, sin cannot stop revival. Because if sin could stop revival, revival would never come. Right? It would never come. It's impossible for sin to stop revival. And again, I want to get revival out of our head, and we're going to talk about revelation here in a second. So revival talks about fixing external behavior, which really leads to condemnation. All right? A revival really is sin consciousness. That's really what it is. If you really want to get down to the brass taxes, it's... That's exactly what it is. All right. One verse that you can look up later is Romans 7, 9. It's one of two scriptures in the entire New Testament that actually use the word revive. Okay. Romans 7, 9. And the other one is Luke 15, 24, which is the story of the prodigal son. Uh, when my son, is, my son, who I thought was dead, is alive. All right. It, that's that scripture is talking about. Romans 7, 9. Um, I'm going to read this really quick just because it's really good. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 9. This just really was a, a huge revelation to me. Hopefully it will be to you too. Uh, okay. Just talking about sin consciousness here and revival of sin. And again, looking at the word revival, all right? I thought this was so good. This is Paul speaking. Romans 7, 9. Well, I'm going to start at verse 8. It says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Think about that in the context of revival. Right? Right? When you're talking about revival, most people think about revival, it's talking about sin. When you, when you go into a revival meeting and they're talking about sin, it just, that's what you think about. You become sin conscious, Right? Not necessarily that you were thinking about it before, but boy, you step into an old school revival, I guarantee you're going to be thinking about sin. It might not be the, you know, the big sins, if there's no such thing as that, but I guarantee you'll start thinking about your shortcomings, right? Because sin, we have to remember, is not doing things that we're commanded to do, right? Whatever is, not, whatever is, is, um, is, is unbelief is, is sin, right? Okay. So, talking about uh, revival of sin there. All right, I want to get into Revelation really quick, the last six or seven minutes here. Okay, revival is an outside-in focus. Revelation is an inside-out focus. It's a revelation of, of, uh, of Jesus. We don't need another revival. What we need is a revelation. Revelation is an act of revealing or communicating divine truth. The making known of something that was previously secret or unknown. Okay? That was previously secret or unknown. What do we need a revelation of? Of Christ and Him crucified. Paul received the revelation of Christ. Right? Wrote two-thirds of the New Covenant. Right? He had the revelation of Jesus. He never met Him personally, but He did meet Him. 
right? He had a revelation of Jesus, right? Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. <clears throat> Anybody getting a better understanding here about what revival is and what it's not? Okay. Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. I'm just going to read it just for time's sake. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's what we, um, what we read earlier. 2 Corinthians 3, 7-11. through 11. 2 Corinthians 3, just one book before. 2 Corinthians 3, 7-11. through 11. A verse we've heard before a lot of times. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death, which in that context there, the ministry of death is the Ten Commandments, right? That Paul is talking about. It's the Ten Commandments. And letters engraved on stones. That's why it's the Ten Commandments. Came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How much will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even even more with glory. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, it did have glory. Absolutely, there's no denying that. It had glory, but it faded away. That's why Moses had to put a veil over his face because he knew it was fading away. He didn't want the people to see that it was fading away. Right? For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in its glory. Okay? And I'm going to end with this scripture here, just again for time purposes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. And this just speaks perfectly to what we need a revelation of, especially the church. Because, I mean, let's just face it. The, the world is not going to change until the church wakes up to who they are. Right? Why would we be telling people, number one, why would we be telling them bad news when we haven't understood the full revelation of the finished work? Now, I know... Most people in here have, thank God, right? Um, but until the world or the church really understands about who they are, then, you know, uh, the world's just not going to change. It's just, that's just how it is. Um, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Now, some translations say it a different way, but uh, the, the King James is really the one that I'm going to use. <clears throat> Verse 34. I'm going to use the King James again. It says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Right? Awake to righteousness. That, in, in essence, is the revelation that we need. Righteousness. Who we are in Christ. That's a revelation. And it's not just a one-time thing that happens. It's a continual revelation because we're transformed by the what? Renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind is who we are in Christ, right? We're the righteousness of God. He who that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? That's the revelation that we need. So again, I want to make it very clear. I'm not against praying. I'm not even, well, yeah, I'm against revival because it's it's not really taught in the new covenant. Jesus certainly didn't teach it. Paul didn't teach it. But what I am against is, thinking that we've got to gather thousands and thousands of people, whether that be in a stadium. And I used to do that. Anybody that's ever done that before, there's prayer movements out there that gather millions of people and they come together for corporate fasts and they do all these things trying to get God to move and basically apologizing 
for what God has already forgiven them of, okay? And what we really need to understand is, you know, that is not what revival looks like. Revival, it really, it's revelation and teaching people about the finished work of Christ and understanding that we are revival, right? We are revival. We don't have to pray for revival and seek revival and seek a new move of God and seek a new anointing and seek, seek more of Him, more of Him, more of Him. It's more of a revelation of Him, absolutely. It is a more of a revelation of Him, and I totally believe that. But it's not asking God for more of what you have fully, right? I think I used the example previously. It's like a dog chasing his tail, Right? If we only understood what we already have in Christ, who we already are, that's when revelation comes. And if you want to use the word revival, fine. Um, maybe a new covenant revival, I guess, if you could look at it that way. But that's really what revival is. So does that make sense? Is that good? You guys understand? Got some good points out of that? Good. Awesome. Well, let's pray. Get you guys out of here. And hope you enjoyed it. And um, yeah. Have a good day. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the revelation. We thank you that, God, we don't have to cry out for revival because we are revival. God, you've given us uh, everything that we need for life and for godliness. Everything. God, you've not left us in the dark. You've not given us 50% of yourself, 75%, 100%. We are full in you, God. Full of righteousness, God. Never losing that. We don't leak out righteousness, God. We thank you that we are fully righteous all of the time, Father. And we just thank you for this day. Thank you for continued revelation of who we are in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Enjoy your day. Appreciate your time.